Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are here with part two talking about Dracula. And if you haven't listened to part one or have an idea of who our guests are, make sure you head back because I'm just not going to bother explaining it to you. You should have listened to part one in the first place. But we are going to kick off uh, from exactly where we kind of left off, really. And we were talking about the Constantinople at this stage, weren't we, Gemma? I think. Am I right? Yes. Yes. We were in the uh, 1453 uh, conquest before. The terminology is debatable and it can be quite loaded, so I'm not going to touch that discussion but yes we were talking about uh, Mehmed II's taking of Constantinople which is at that point all that is left of the Byzantine Empire and I think we were about to have um, highlight some of the importance in the military technology being used at that time. And that's Victor's um, thing isn't it? He's supposed to that, be talking about that. Yeah I think I think it was Victor's fantastic idea to to talk about uh, the canon and the canon creator so over to you my friend go. All right. The reason Constantinople has survived for so many years, for more than a thousand years, was that its uh, land side walls, called the Theodosian walls, were extremely tall and thick. And for a thousand years, they were able to prevent invaders from uh, taking the city. Uh, so there were numerous attempts, very many attempts, until 1453, when something happened that enabled the new forces in the region, the Ottomans, to take the city. And that new event was a change in the technology of siege warfare through the development of a super gun. Uh, by a Transylvanian engineer named Orban. The, the, in order for him to be able to build his gun, he had to overcome a lot of technical difficulties and uh, challenges. But just to put it in perspective, the largest gun at that time was a gun called Mons Meg that was cast in Edinburgh. And for comparison, it had a barrel that was about 15 feet long, which is about 4.6 meters, and a diameter of 20 inches or 51 centimeters. By comparison, the cannon that Orban was able to cast had 20 
had a barrel that was 27 feet long, 8.2 meters, and a diameter of 30 inches. That makes the bore of the cannon, of uh, Orban cannon, 125% larger than Magmans. Uh, in consequence, whereas Magmans could shoot a stone ball of about 400 pounds or 800, 180 kilo, kilograms, Orban was able to shoot 800 pounds, about 360 kilograms, into take it about a mile in distance. When he the, the, the cannon was cast in Edirne, the then capital of the Ottoman Empire on the European side, and when they tested this cannon, um, the population of town began to panic, and they are reporting that uh, many windows were broken and there were miscarriages among the women. Now, some of this may have been apocryphal stories, but nonetheless, it was a serious event. Now, this cannon was cast in 1452, and it had to be transported a distance of about um, 100 and 140 miles to uh, Constantinople, and that required a team of about 400 people and 600, uh, 60 oxen. Uh, the people had to take care of building new roads or repairing the old ones, enlarging them, building bridges, and then moving the cannon itself with pulleys and other artifacts. It took them several weeks to transport the cannon from Edirne to Constantinople. And when they began to use it in a siege in 1453, it was fired only every few hours. It took about three hours for the cannon to cool down and it had to be cleaned and reloaded. So uh, in essence, there weren't that many uh, 800-pound balls shot at the walls. But in addition to the material effect of the cannon, the psychological effect played a big role in the conquest of Constantinople. And then after about 53 years of siege, the city fell to Mehmet and subsequently a while later became Istanbul. Wow, 53 years? 53 days. Days. Oh, 53 days. I miss her. Yeah, because, 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 yeah, the year is 1453, so you can get a little... Yeah, it was a There's coincidence. a lot of fifty threes going around. Yeah, right. A good is that a special number, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. Clearly, it is for Mehmet. <laughs> it's his lucky number. <laughs> Gemma, tell us a little bit about what's happening after after the city falls. Mehmet is. This is his thing. Constantinople has been the the red apple. This is this is what he's wanted. This is what he has dreamed of. It's not going to be his last conquest by any means. He becomes known to us as the conqueror. It is his first and his biggest. So what he essentially does is he's very into perpetuating the idea that he is now Caesar or Roman emperor by right of conquest. Um, his argument is that Constantinople was sort of the capital of the Roman Empire, and in taking it, he kind of takes on that role. And you see a lot of 
continuity of the sort of Roman, Eastern Roman, Byzantine, again, not Byzantine, it's not going to have that debate, continuity that I don't have time to go into, but if you do sort of read around this transition era, it's quite, quite fascinating. But um, so he takes on these um, titles. He is the Sultan of Rum. He, in the most immediate aftermath, the soldiers get three days in accordance with custom to pillage and loot as they were promised. And then after three days, um, Mehmet really begins to turn the city into his imperial capital. Now, they already have an imperial capital. You've already heard say, you know, they were at um, Edirne, but this is, he moves everything to Istanbul really pr pretty quickly, um, all things considered. And one of the key things is he he wants to start minting coins with his new status and titles on. So the mint comes to Istanbul. We're not exactly sure about the logistics or time frame of when the mint moved from Edirne to Istanbul, but we can assume it would be pretty quickly based on how fast the coins come. And the other aspect of material culture where Mehmet was really putting his mark on the city was two large construction projects. Um, the first one we would all know is uh, Topkapı Palace, which would be the homes of the sultans until the mid-19th century. So until um, Dolmabadze Palace um, opened up in the 19th century. Uh, so conquest began about six years after after the uh, after Constantinople, it was called the New Palace then. Um, and if you've never visited, if you're in Istanbul, I recommend you go. There's this would be the centre of Ottoman administrative life and the royal family's main home base I, until the 19th century. It's it's really where everything uh, would go on. So Mehmet builds this, and there is also a mosque named after him, um, Fatih Mosque which is in the Fatih district of Istanbul. Um, so that mosque was put up in the 1460s. Um, it was damaged in an earthquake in the 18th century and rebuilt to a different design. But the point is the mosque still stands there. And mainly my takeaway of how he's asserting his power is the titles he's using, he puts them on the buildings. There's calligraphy everywhere on these buildings, basically saying, you know, you are entering my territory. I am Mehmet. I am the Sultan. I am, you know, God's represent, um, God's shadow on earth. They're, they're listed everywhere. So it's really, really a big, big statement. Uh, he also turns the uh, Church of Hagia Sophia becomes a mosque, but if you haven't seen the wonderful restoration work, he orders the the angels are not they're whitewashed over, they're covered, they're not destroyed. And actually in recent years restoration work have um has uncovered the old Byzantine paintings left there. So we're very lucky to still have that. And one more thing I want to mention is a famous portrait of Mehmet that you should see if you what well, if you've done any um, research on him at all, or, or if you know anything about it, it was um, a portrait by Bellini, uh, Gentile Bellini, the famous um, portrait painter. And this is striking because not only in its realism, which we don't traditionally see in Ottoman art, but also I think Mehmet is communicating to Western Europe and legitimizing himself to Western Europe because if you look at the style of this portrait, 
it's very similar to the portraits of the Venetian doges in its composition. There's a lot of symbolism behind how many crowns are in the portrait to how many lands he rules um, and so on. So that's that's a very significant part of Mehmet representing his own power, not only within the city, but also abroad as well. So he he is very much, I'm here, I'm great, and learn my name because you're going to be hearing more about it. And he really, really is out to leave his mark. But through all of this time and all of these constructions, that you know what, Victor, he's still got that pesky little Valachian thorn in his side. What what what's happening with Vlad? How does he, you know, how does Vlad sort of exit the chat, as it were? Well, um, after Constantinople, the first significant move that Mehmed makes is uh, trying to take Belgrade. Mm. Belgrade being one of the most important fortresses on his way to. Rome, so to speak, on an overland to, uh, route to Lo uh, to Rome, and mm. uh, he happens to be uh, faced there by one of the perhaps the best warrior of the time, uh, John of Hunyadi, mm -hmm. or uh, John Hunyadi, who was at that time, I believe, regent of Hungary. And after a protracted siege of uh, several weeks, uh, Mehmet gave up and went home. And that victory uh, at Belgrade is celebrated <clears throat> with the tolling of the churches at noon throughout the world to this day. All right. Unfortunately, uh, days after the end of the battle, uh, Hunyadi died of the plague and left a big vacuum there in the Christendom for any uh, significant warrior or leader. Well, in uh, 1456, Vlad, uh, to, known as Dracula as well, uh, manages to ascend or accede to the throne of his father, Vlad Dracul, who had died assassinated in 1447. And after he settled some accounts with the boyars who had killed his father and his brother, uh, consolidates his power. And for the next six years, he prepares for what he knows will be an inevitable uh, conflict with Mehmet. And in not a small measure, Vlad caused that conflict to perhaps to accelerate by refusing to pay tribute. Yeah, Actually, he, does. he did not directly refuse, but he always temporized mm -hmm. about it. Like, oh, excuse me, I don't have enough money this month. And uh, could you give me a little more time and so forth? But then in about in 1461, Vlad decided for his own reasons, I believe, to provoke the actual invasion by Mehmet. I, my suspicion, and I treat this in my novels and, and the way I, I see it, is that he didn't believe Mehmet was ready yet. He, he believed that Mehmet wanted to make his incursion to Rome on the 10th anniversary of the fall of Constantinople, which would have been 1463. And he thought, if I force his hand, he'll come half prepared and perhaps I can deal with him. And in view of that uh, 
event, he decided to cross the Danube that was frozen in 1461, winter, let's say December 1461. Danube was frozen. He crossed over to the southern bank and destroyed about seven of uh, Mehmed's most important fortresses there, as well as stores of grain and all sorts of supplies that had been laid there for uh, a future campaign. Well, uh, needless to say, Mehmed would not take this uh, sitting down. And then in the summer of 1462, he put together a very credible, creditable army of about 120,000 people and about another 100,000 perhaps of uh, logistic personnel and crossed the Danube and went after Vlad. Vlad, uh, unfortunately, he had been promised money by Pope Pius II to face the Turks and with which money with which he would have built a more credible army. But that money was pocketed by King Mat Matthias of, uh, of Hungary, son of John of Hunyadi, John Hunyadi. And without that money, Vlad was left to deal with uh, Mehmed with, only with his own people. Well, nonetheless, he conducted a very successful guerrilla warfare, which was relatively new in that area at the time, and managed to harass Mehmed until the point where the, the poor man gave up. And, uh, and the last image that Mehmed of head of Wallachia was reputedly a forest of about 30,000 impaled people surrounding the capital of Wallachia, the town of Turgoviste. And I think we're not 100% sure on that figure, though. Give or take, shall we of say. Course, all, of the <laughs> Give figure, or take. all of the figures in this history are grossly exaggerated by either party, but um, and it, it's, it's believed that there were thousands, which is Makes That's what they put about anyway to make it sound it more terrifying. It, an, it makes it an impressive sight. Well, when Mehmed saw this, he, he just got completely discouraged and decided to to turn around and go back. However, at the same time, uh, Vlad, who should have now been have his power consolidated there, was betrayed by some of his people, by his warriors, and most more importantly, by his enemies across the mountains in, in uh, Kronstadt, which is today Brasov. These were Saxons of Transylvania with whom he had dealt very harshly in previous years. And they manufactured some letters in Latin, in poorly written Latin, mind you, in which uh, it appeared that Vlad was begging Mehmed for forgiveness and promising allegiance and all of that. It was all BS, but it was good enough for, for King Matthias to say, uh, well, let's look into this issue. And he had Vlad arrested, taken to Buddha, and put on trial. Well, if he had proven that there was treason, he could have easily killed him. But apparently he couldn't prove it. There were testimony in favor of Vlad. But just to be on the safe side, he kept Vlad in prison for something between 10 and 14 years again the figures are not certain and this is this is the time when he marries a hungarian princess i believe i'm correct yes very so for about 10 to 12 14 years he's kept in prison one of the places is 
a fort, a mountaintop fortress called Vishagrad on the Danube, uh, just north of Budapest. Buda, Buda, Budapest mm -hmm. didn't exist at that time. And he spent most of the time there. At the bottom of that mountain was the summer residence of King Matthias. So you could see why he wanted to keep him close on the closer. Mm. It is assumed that that is the time when his portrait was painted. The portrait, portrait that is now, well, the portrait that is at the Ambrose Castle in Innsbruck, the only one that we have of him, yeah. may be a copy of that original portrait. But apparently he set for a painting in those years of imprisonment. Well, in the meantime, Mehmet, taking advantage of Vlad's departure, appointed uh, his brother, Radu the Handsome, uh, as voivode, or practically king of Wallachia. And one of the reasons he did that, well, two reasons, perhaps. One is that Radu had converted to Islam. That is, again, not proven, but strongly believed. Mm -hmm. And the other one is that the two of them had a romantic liaison. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, therefore, Mehmet trusted him. And I think that uh, Radu never really let him down because for the next uh, 12 years, I think, he ruled Wallachia and apparently with sufficient competency. However, in 1475, Radu dies under mysterious circumstances. And now Mehmet has to come back and figure out who to put on charge there because the situation became unstable very quickly. At the same time, then, King Matthew says, wait a minute, these Turks are, are raising their heads again, or the, the, uh, the Ottomans, and who could face them? I have nobody, nobody except Vlad, Dracula, who is under my care here. So to convince Vlad to, to take up the arms again after being kept away for 12 years or 14, he gave him one of his, I guess, a niece in marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, the only problem, is, and, and he asked him to convert to Catholicism because the Hungarians were Catholics. Well, this didn't go very well with the Romanians. And no. They have led to his reputed assassination. But again, that's not a proven fact. But he then was given an army and went back and met Mehmet for the last time in 1476 to 77, the Winter War, just outside present-day Bucharest, and apparently defeated Mehmet again. And the, 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 the legend is that he was so happy that uh, he had beaten Mehmet that he rode his horse on the top of a hill to take a, a view over the battlefield. And that's where he was surrounded by uh, prisoners, boyars who assassinated him. Well, it says that he was. Can we go on to the burial business? Yeah, yeah Vlad's Vlad's um, death and debate. Because just to um, check, out, he was he's decapitated in this battle, isn't he? He's that is isn't that how he died. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how he died. Well, hold on, hold on. we've got nobody pre-warned me. There's going to be decapitation. Well, <laughs> okay, it it. It's not clear that he was, but subsequent, after he died, they took off his head, they said. So that decapitation post-mortem is reputed. And okay, Mehmet, yeah. It is claimed that Mehmet took his head and put it in a jar of honey as a preservative and paraded it through the empire. Well, Lovely. there isn't much evidence about that. And furthermore, 
since it's been reported then he was then secretly buried in the island of Snagov in the church of Snagov outside of Bucharest um, with or without the head uh, he's supposed to have been buried there so now we have some controversy here about Oh yeah, this is this but is a big deal. Can the I discussions just throw something about in. So there's always controversy because you've kind of you've got the history is written by the victors, as we very well know. So this mm-hmm. is why these kind of rumors are all the way around. Oh, you know, he chopped off his head, he put it in honey, and he paraded it around because look, look what we did. Look how amazing we are. We are the victors, and at the end of the day, we don't truly know the truth, and I don't think well, we ever will. Yeah, Mehmet couldn't very well go home empty-handed. Uh, there was a lot of reputation at stake there. So he could easily take a head and put it in a jar. Who would be able to prove? I mean, all Romanians look the same anyway. Uh, so big black mustache. I'm not touching that. I'm not touching that. That's As a Romanian, I can afford to... Be yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not passing comment on that statement. <laughs> as a young man, I used to have a big mustache and on people looking at pictures says I look like Pablo Escobar. Um, it's true it's true i've seen the pictures of victor as a young man it's true oh no so it is very easy for mehmet to have taken anybody's head there is a controversy that we're not going to go into this time but a similar thing happened in at the battle of varna when the then king of hungary um, was killed and they said uh his head was taken and put on a stake and all of that and yet for decades later, he was reputed to live in in, in, the, in Portugal or in the Azores and so forth. There's uh, lots mm-hmm. of legends about it. But coming back to, to Vlad, uh, his story gets complicated after he disappears. I, 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 I refrain from saying he died because <laughs> eventually, he's, presumably he died eventually, although those who believe that he's a vampire know he didn't die. But uh, we'll keep that as a as a in between stage. Here. However, what happened is that in the early 20th century, archaeologists opened his tomb in Sinagog and did not find him there. If they found the uh, I think horse bones in some kind of a regal regalia, so that somebody important was buried there in Sinagog, in the island of Sinagog, but the bones were not human. So that, of course, raises a lot of other suspicions. And then the latest theory, can we go into that, Gemma? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit, it gets a bit Da Vinci code, the debates around um, Vlad and like, where is his body and things like that. But yes, we'll, we'll bring you the most up-to-date information we have. Take it, uh, go right ahead. This is hilarious. Well, uh, go right ahead. Sometimes in around 2000, <laughs> I, I've even asked Chad GPT if there was through and he said, I, I cannot tell for sure. <laughs> Uh, no one knows. <laughs> in 2003, the, a, a team of Estonian historians did some research in Naples at the Church of Santa Maria Novella. And there they came upon two things. One, an inscription on the wall. And the other one, uh, a bas-relief of a sarcophagus. It looked like the sarcophagus may have been in embedded in the wall and just the front panel was visible well on this front panel they noticed uh, uh, figurines of of dragons that did not uh, were not congruent with the art of southern Italy 
and but they were very similar to what they had seen in Wallachia and in Transylvania. So therefore they say, wow, who is this? They did a little more research and they came upon information. Well, a lot of other people got into this business now. A lot of Italian historians and amateurs and sleuths and so forth. And the upshot of it is that now they say that his daughter, Vlad's daughter, somehow found a way to Naples and married one of the uh, offshoots of the royal family there. And therefore, it's conceivable that she brought her father there, who was wounded and getting old in his late 40s, mind you. <laughs> but at that time, that was oldish. And um, brought him there. And therefore, it's very conceivable that he was buried there. I will solve that mystery in volume nine of my book. So you'll have to wait for that to be written. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit of a question. Anyone yeah, so that's the question. Well, probably not definitively. I say we're going to have we're going to have Victor's take on it um, in his book. But I mean, for my money, I it would be really nice to believe that Vlad, you know, went, you know, survived and went on and, and, and lived a while. But I. Had he done that, I can't see him, you know, old or not by the standards of the time, not coming back. And well, not giving I, it a I go. I think I think he would want to go down swinging. That's just my will, personal opinion. Yeah, I will have to explain why he remained incognito, right? Because yeah, if it I seems it doesn't theory, gel with his character right. for me. That's all. If I, it, perhaps it's a love story. Hey, don't oh, know. Uh, maybe he had enough. You know, this something like this happened. Something similar happened to Murat II. He got tired of war after twenty years. He did. He just, the the scepter says I'm, I'm done. I want to go, like you said, on top of the mountain and meditate with Sufis. Yeah, sports and and drink wine. By the way, he was a good drinker. So why not Vlad saying after being in prison for 14 years, and then coming back and being attacked by by all people? You know what? Screw this thing. I'm gonna go and find my woman and settle down in Naples and drink wine and so on. And we'll see. I have to. I have to figure I out. I mean, that. that sounds like a pretty good life. Can anyone yeah. want to offer me that kind of life? It yeah, I'll take. I'll take two of 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 what he's having. You know, like uh, Gemma says, it goes against the type because you would expect him to go down swinging. But uh, if we look at his psychology, being put away for fourteen years does something to your mind. Not in terms of l l uh, losing your nerve, but in terms of saying, "Am I? Who am I doing this for?" If you guys treat me like this, because you know they're all Christians, you know he's yeah. I'm trying to help you people, and this is the thanks I get. Help you, and you do this to me. Well, you know what? I got some words for you. So, but they are Italian. It's mafangu. <laughs> so, that's a possibility. Right, guys. Let's talk a little bit about pop culture because this is such a hot topic. I mean, my God, vampires are. At one mm. stage, were such a in thing to be writing about it, to be seeing it on TV. I mean, how many TV programs have we got that are about vampires? How many TV programs have we got about Dracula in itself? How many films have we got? How many books, apart from obviously Victor's books, but you know, and wine, and wine bottles, and, oh exactly, yeah, and wine yeah. bottles. So let's talk a little bit about what do, what is the truth? How far should we go with this truth? And where are we with it now? 
I've I've actually done some work on this because I like studying on history and popular culture. So I'm going to usually I would write conference papers and, and things about Victor's books. So I'm going to leave that for, for him to share with you because he's literally their creator. But um, I have watched a lot of terrible Dracula films in the name of doing this research. I watch them so you guys don't have to. You're welcome, because a lot of them are quite terrible. But some of them. I actually um, enjoyed, and there is one now. There's two movies called Dark Prince. One of them's more historical and much better. The other one, the other one just has some sort of uh, Fabio wannabe in like pale makeup being Dracula. Don't watch that one. It's not good. But um, I think in very recent years, I mean, in English language, because obviously Dracula has always been known as the prince in Romania. I'm seeing more in sort of Anglophone media, novels and movies about the historical Vlad, rather than just using his name and tacking it on a vampire. Now, there are there are so many studies about Bram Stoker's novel and where he did or did not take influence from the real Vlad and um, I would recommend anyone interested in that in particular to get Elizabeth Miller's book Dracula Sense and Nonsense because that's um, she does a really comprehensive dissection in there in terms of well there are some little goodies in the history that kind of like lend itself to folklore and this is a useful fact for your pub quiz you remember Victor's um, mentioning how he marries the Catholic princess, converts to Catholicism, and that is not popular in Orthodox Romania. There was a theory, a contemporary superstition at the time, that if you died excommunicated, you were at risk of coming back as a vampire. Technically, you can argue Vlad had that, when he would have been excommunicated from the Orthodox Church. So that's just an interesting little little tidbit there. But um, yes, there is definitely less vampire, more void, although there are pop cultures that like to kind of blend the two, that the historical Vlad did come back. And I'm guilty of this in my favourite novel, The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. He is the real Valachian prince, but he comes back, but he's more about wanting scholars to perpetuate the truth about him um, rather than anything else. So, and if you haven't read The Historian, um, stop everything you're doing with your life and go and read it right now. Um, and then you have C.C. Humphrey's book, which is called Vlad, The Last Confession. Now, this is a novel and it uses a rather interesting framing device of confession being taken from three characters and they are Dracula's mistress, Dracula's personal priest, and Dracula's sort of best friend, comrade in arms. And I'm not going to spoil the twist for you if you haven't read it, but um, this is this is an instance where you know everyone thinks Vlad has died, but it's it's you don't really find out till the end of the book. Um, but yes, there's more there's more vampire movies and sort of. TV shows than you could shake a stick at. And it's interesting when you see how vampires on screen develop, because originally they're Nosferatu, right? They're shroud eaters. They're, you know, they look quite monstrous. Then sort of Stoker's novel comes and turns Dracula into this kind of urbane, very sort of charming, very sexy Victorian gentleman who's kind of 
respectable and charismatic on the outside, but there's that monster inside and, and that sort of ties into all the gothic culture of the day. But um, I mean, I couldn't even... I haven't even watched half of the vampire things out there and I've been watching vampire stuff since I was a kid because I was that teenager. Um, but just know that just because it has the name Dracula on it, you know, I think I think vampire Dracula and historical Dracula are separate. Their stories can diverge sometimes. And I think there's no better sometimes sort of... They overlap. Sometimes, they, sometimes overlap. they overlap. Sometimes they overlap on the Venn diagram, but I think there could be no better sort of explanation of the fact that Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Vampirism's always going to have a place in discussions about Dracula. They're just inextricably linked at this point. And for my money, if something like that gets someone interested enough to research the name and find out the history of Vlad III... I'm okay with it. And also because I have interests in folklore, um, I'm okay with sort of the vampire mythology just as long as we we do maintain that understanding. And there are um, probably my two favourite journal articles in Dracula Studies, and um, I'll wrap up my discussion of pop culture with this, were the first two editions of the um, Dracula Studies journal. And Elizabeth Miller, fantastic Dracula literature scholar, wrote a paper called um, Filing for Divorce, Count Dracula versus Vlad the Impaler. And then, so that was in issue one of the journal. And in issue two, uh, Dracula historian Raymond McNally, who was one of the guys who really brought Dracula history into the Anglophone world, he wrote a response to Professor Miller called um, Separation Granted, Divorce Denied, Annulment Unlikely, in which he's he's basically going, look, we know literature Dracula and history Dracula are not the same, but, you know, the names are going to stick. They're always going to share this name. Um, but I do recommend looking up those two articles. They are available open access online and they are a pretty good read. But um, in terms of the, the historical Vlad, uh, Victor is the author of the most modern definitive work on that so i'm gonna let i'm gonna let victor speak to that let's let's hear about your novels victor all right well my take on vlad was based on my understanding of his being a national hero and having contributed to defending europe not only his country Wallachia, which is part of romania today but most of central and, and uh, well, Central Europe, for sure, against 
being invaded by the Ottoman Turks or the the Muslims, the yeah the Ottomans. So uh, having learned about him, having grown up with him as being such a national hero, when I discovered uh, many years later that he's known to the world as a vampire, I had a very negative reaction to that. I was uh, deeply offended, and I said to myself that aren't there some books that talk about the real Dracula? This being uh, 1970, the answer was no. There was absolutely nothing, neither in popular culture, at least outside Romania. I'm speaking outside Romania. Because uh, this, my, revel my, my epiphany came in, in Chicago. Um, there were no books about him, fiction or nonfiction, outside Romania. So I said... Uh, since I'm not a historian, I couldn't write a, a nonfiction book, but I said I could possibly in the future write a novel. And I did take a long time to get prepared and learn everything that I needed to learn about that. And finally, I started to write this novel, which presently has four volumes available. And it's intended, I intended to have it nine volumes based on my calculation of the events that I have yet to cover. Now, my approach to dealing with, with Vlad is slightly different from the one that you will see in similar novels in Romania. There's the Romanian authors who write very good books about him. They take a much more openly patriotic uh, approach because why not? I mean, that's uh, I would do the same if I were writing in Romania. But my thinking was that for the foreign audience or for foreign readership, people who don't know anything about Vlad to start with, becoming overly, you know, uh, brave-heartish about it uh, would turn them off. So I decided to internationalize him to a large extent, and by that I provided him a, a larger theater of operation. And so his activities will show up in Italy, Hungary, Austria, of course, Transylvania, Wallachia, and so forth. And the first four books culminate with the Battle of Varna, one of the most important battles of, of that time, in which Mehmet's father confronted uh, John Hunyadi and others, of course. And going beyond that, volume five and six will deal with the approach of the fall of Constantinople. Uh, six and seven will do with uh, will deal with Vlad taking power in Wallachia and finally fighting it off with uh, Mehmet. And then volume nine, maybe, we don't know yet, could take us all the way to southern Italy. So to the Western reader or the non-Romanian reader, I present a more like I said, urbane international character. The issues that are dealt with in the book are European issues, not Wallachian issues exclusively. And because of this, I have been very successful in attracting a large readership of people who did not know anything either about Vlad or the geography of the place or all the conflicts of the 15th century. And now, I hear from them that they 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 learn more history reading my book than than reading history books, and that's because they learn it subliminally. I want to emphasize that my books are not lectures in history; they are supposed to be fun, adventure, 
love stories and, and intrigues and so forth. But in, underneath the surface, there is a ton of uh, factual information that will help a reader become a lot more oriented about things happening in the 15th century in Central Europe and Middle East. I think um, also we um, we were having this discussion, I think a while ago now, I was um, reading it, and because you're sort of entertaining but also educating this sort of Western audience, you 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 changed the name of Vlad's Big Brother, and when I when I picked up the first book, I was going, who the Who's heck this? is this? Yeah, I'm going. Who the heck is it? Where's my favorite? Where's my favorite Dracula Prince? Because uh, Mitra's my favorite. I'm going. Where is he? Why is he called Marcus? What's well, happening? <laughs> what, I, when I started to write, I I reflected upon the fact that it is difficult for a non-Romanian reader to pronounce and remember Romanian names. That's one challenge. The second one is that, as in many of those uh, Eastern European cultures, names are repeated. So you will have Mircea the Elder, mm. who is the grandfather of uh, Vlad's grandfather. Then you have Mircea the brother. And between not knowing how to pronounce it and not remembering what it looks like, uh, the reader is at a loss. So I said, well, what would it be if I uh, translated those names into names that have wider circulation, usually biblical names. So I named the grandfather Justus and the brother Marcus. Now, in order, I'm sure this will offend some of Romanian purists, but not one of my readers have, other than Gemma, <laughs> have protested <laughs> to this indignity. And uh, to help, however, the serious reader to get oriented among the real characters, I have a glossary of terms at the end of every book where the names are presented as in the book in alphabetical orders and then their real name, including their pronunciation. So if you want to be thorough about this, you can really be. But in the meantime, if we just want to have fun, Marcus and Justice and others like that. I mean, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't really a protest. I was just confused. I was like, where is he? Where's, where's my favorite prince? But um, I think, I mean, we've talked about how you've had like a very positive reception um at least your western readers but your book's not currently available in romanian to romanian they, readers we were talking about not, this weren't we they, they are becoming available but not translated so that's the latest development i have now been asked by several libraries both university and municipal and regional libraries to make my books available for their catalog and it looks like I will end up having them in just about all the universities and the large libraries in the country. I mean, that's uh, really exciting. It is, and I, I, they all, they have already received the several letters of uh, acknowledgement and thanks from them. And at one of the presentations, where books were presented to one of the famous libraries outside Bucharest, so people in the audience says, "Well, why aren't they in Romanian? Why aren't they translated?" So. My 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 thinking is that if, first of all, the translation is a beastly difficult thing, especially for a book in nine volumes. So I, I'm not ready to tackle that. But while I'm writing and getting ready to translate them, it'd be nice to have them uh, planted throughout the country so that the younger generations who do read English, because English wasn't very popular when I grew up there, but now 
the young people, especially all involved in IT and so forth, they all speak English. So if they can read the English, then the word gets around. And when we finally translate the books, they will have a ready-made uh, readership there. But uh, they are even saying that the book will be accepted by the Romanian Academy Library, which is it's stupendous. I mean, I am I am shocked. I I can't believe it. But that's how I remember. They... I remember you telling me about that. You were like, "This is a huge deal." It was. It was. I, I still can't believe it because it's too big. To it's like the Académie Française is way too high. I I, I, am... I I don't feel worthy of that. But if they'll do it, well, I'll I'll take it. My alma am... mater. My alma mater was the first to accept the books, and they that's asked nice. for they asked for five copies. So they could this no no ten copies ten copies of each volume, so they could distribute them to the various colleges like the the philology the English literature and so forth. So that was a big thing, and then afterwards everybody is starting to ask for them. Yeah, you're becoming you're becoming a trend. Well, that's I am I am really happy about that actually. But yeah, that's that's where we are. That's Victor's book. But history hack listeners, you should be able to pick up Victor's books from our shop. I believe um Alina knows. Alina, the all-seeing, the all-powerful, the omnipotent goddess yes. of history, Hack, will be yes. able to tell us about that. Basically, Victor, if you can just remind our listeners the name of your book, and then we will get that into our shop. So the book is Dracula Chronicles, Volume 1, Son of the Dragon, Volume 2, Empire of the Crescent Moon, Volume 3, The House of War, Volume 4, Death of Kings, Volume 5 to be written next year is called Zara, and it has to do with Vlad's first real love. Amazing. Thank you so much for both of you coming on. And um, we will get that in our bookshop. So you get a slice of the pie, we get a slice of the pie, and that shop that's named after a river in South America will not get a massive slice of the pie or that rocket that they're apparently sending into space. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Pleasure, Alina. Thank you for having us. Bye-bye. Thank you for having us. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.